Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and I'm excited to bring you this episode with Chris Kukla. He's primarily a video game composer, and in our conversation, he gave some great advice about freelancing. We also talked about emulating Bernard Herrmann, who wrote most of the music for Hitchcock's films. For those of you new to the show, I just want to point out that you can go to ComposerQuest.com to check out all 67 other episodes, and you can also find the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Now, on to my conversation with Chris Kukla. Chris, it's awesome having you on Composer Quest. Thanks. Oh, yeah, th- thanks for having me. I've been listening to the show for, you know, I think I have done around the second or third episode and been listening since. Oh, wow. Yeah. Kind of weird hearing my voice in a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after listening to it for so long when I'm, you know, running or something like that. It's, yeah, it's different. Yeah. I've definitely had that experience talking with other podcasters. It's like, yeah. I know a lot about you, but you know nothing about me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really appreciated your offer to pass on my name as a composer to other people. Oh, absolutely. It sounds like you have a good problem, which is you're getting too much composing work. You said you were working like 50 hours a week composing? Oh, no, no, like 80 probably. Oh, man. But, um, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, Like, but, but I like it, so it's not bad, and... You know, get a bunch of coffee in me, and but what what a lot of people don't realize is when I say I work eighty hours a week, probably about forty or fifty of that is spent writing. The other, you know, thirty or forty is spent sending invoices or procuring new jobs or talking to clients on the phone, and that all of that other stuff to keep the business of me writing music going and running is very time consuming. Yeah. How do you go about getting this work? Well, there's a variety of ways. There's a bunch of forums online for video games. And there's a few for film, but I mostly just check around video game forums. Craigslist is great. But the best jobs are just from being proactive. If you see somebody who's doing something you like, even if you don't think they need music, I say just send them a friendly hello and be like, hey, I really like your work. Uh, this is what I do. You, you might not need somebody now, but keep me in mind for the future. Yeah. Definitely my best relationships with people have come out of me reaching out instead of them putting an ad online or a Craigslist, and then I get in touch with them that way. And if it's someone you actually admire the work of, too, that makes it all the much, all the more better yeah all the more better (laughs) (laughs) yeah how does it work when you're getting paid for these gigs is it all just on a case-by-case basis or do you charge the same amount for each project you work on oh no definitely not it really depends on on the budget i try to coax that out of the client first before trying to name numbers and you know potentially scare somebody away but um I usually just bend to whatever the budget of the client is, and as long as it's not too crazy low. 
And I feel like personally, I'm more willing to work on a project for free or for cheap if I admire the person's work. Absolutely. Just to have an in, just doing something fun, and hopefully it's can help you get more gigs in the future too. Definitely. Well, maybe we could get into a little bit about how you make the video game music. Yeah, sure. I like that on your website you categorize it into 8-bit music and then like 16 to 32-bit music, which is like PlayStation era. Yeah. How do you decide if you're going to do like 8-bit really chiptune sound or something more contemporary for a video game? I try to work with the aesthetic of the game, not only the visuals, but the way it kind of feels and plays too. Like for an RPG I'm currently working on, it's still very pixelated, but then I, I used the orchestral pack, that the stock pack with Reason, and it is perfect because it just it straddles that line of sounding not so great and pretty good. the team that is developing the game also have opinions on what they envision too. Do you ever have to fight for your vision? Or are you guys usually on the same page? Yeah, I've, I've never had to do that. But then again, I also believe in having no ego. When ego comes into play, you're uh, wishing for disaster. Yeah. Maybe we could talk about a game you worked on. Kid Trip? Yeah. So that one, you went the pure chiptune route. Mm -hmm. How do you do chiptune music? I use exclusively Chip Sounds by Plogue, P-L-O-G-U-E. It's a plugin, and it emulates, I think, like 14 chips. It's really authentic sounding and super easy to use. And I'll just throw that on a bunch of tracks and play around with it, and then maybe... Uh, bit crush some drums and I'm good to go. What do you think makes a good chiptune sound? Well, of course, there's that authenticity that you're striving for and even using a VST, there there are things here and there that you wouldn't do if you were writing using the original authentic hardware, because that imposed a lot of melodic restrictions. You can only have a certain amount of sounds and notes playing at once. So, but I mean, those restrictions are fun to write in, but I don't think they're necessary to create a good chiptunes track. When I'm writing, I just go for a really poppy melody. I think one of your catchiest chiptune melodies is in your song for Dim Sum Robot. In this game, 
in like a robot, like a, a mech warrior kind of robot, but you're going around selling dim sum to people. <laughs> it's a really fun game. One thing I liked about your song High Rise Business for that game is that it's swung, which I don't think of chiptune tracks usually being swung. That's true. That was more of just a subconscious decision on my part. into that project the developer edward he was doing a kickstarter for it and i saw the kickstarter and i just sent him an email saying hey i really like this if you need some music get in touch and yeah he he got in touch evidently uh you're not supposed to do that though after sending I had a message via Kickstarter through my account. Kickstarter, not sure how they found it, but they're like, hey, you can't use this to uh, plug or sell yourself, so don't do it. Huh. Weird. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense. They don't want people to use Kickstarter as a spamming platform. Yeah. That makes sense. One thing that I wanted to talk about for your listeners is something that I was not taught is like on the business side is when you begin a project, even if you're not getting paid, have a contract. I've never been in a case where I'm like, oh man, I'm glad I had a contract. But um, I've been in situations where things could have really gone south. Just have everything in writing and have a signature and establish who has the rights. Because if you write music for a game for free, and then um, let's say you want to license it out on something like Audio Jungle to make some money off of it and they say hey no you can't do that situations like that you'll be happy that you have a contract yeah so what is a regular contract for you for a game um it's actually really simple i can pull up my uh it just establishes there's an nda for whatever project i'm working on rights payment um if I own any part of the game, like a lot of people who can't pay up front, I'll ask them, well, you know, let's say in a year when it's finished, we decide to sell it on a website. How about I get 20% of something like that? But be sure to not to step on anybody's toes when you're asking, because some people are very opposed to it. And you don't know what they've put into the project. Maybe they've been working on it for three years. And then you just come along, write up a soundtrack in two weeks and be like, hey, can you give me 40%? In that situation, the developer would be probably a little bit offended. Yeah. So typically, like, I'll ask for 10, 15%. 
in some projects, I'm getting up to 33% because it's just a three-person team, but I'm doing sound design and music. Sure. It's tempting to think that the game you're working on, well, if it does become like Angry Birds <laughs> and they paid you like 100 bucks for a track, you would hope you'd get at least some cut of whatever yeah. Yeah, the no- eventual thing becomes but definitely and some people who are opposed to that you can always put a cap on it too just be like oh 10 percent up to ten thousand dollars or something like that and that makes people a little bit more at ease to sell a part of their you know which what's essentially their child Mm-hmm. well this is all really good info for people oh i'm glad if anybody listening has any questions and they want to reach out via email, maybe you can put my email in the show notes or something. If they have any questions, yeah, I'd be definitely. I'm by no means a guru or anything like that, but I'd be more than happy to attempt to help. Yeah, I'll definitely. What is your email? It is chris c h r i s at chris kukla k u k l a dot com. Awesome. Why don't we talk about some more of your music and how you produce those tracks? Okay. One piece I really liked is Cave, Cave, Cave. The intro to that is really cool because you can't exactly tell what the rhythm is until the drums kick in. Yeah. And it's like constantly changing your mind about what beat one is. Um, I work in Ableton Live. I used filter delay. I just kind of improvised till I found a way that the different delayed notes kind of worked with each other in a way that I liked. Yeah, that track is actually for a uh, bocce ball game for the iOS. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, and um, that track came out of a lot of revision. The guys really weren't sure what they wanted. What did they originally say they wanted? They sent me, it was like down-tempo electronica, almost like atmospheric music, which makes sense for like an easy-going sports game. And then um, they're like, no, we want more guitar, and no, we want more of this, and so on and so on. And uh, yeah, it, be- it became what it is now. There's a little bit of a amalgamation of different tracks in there. sure if you 
listen, but uh, there's another podcast out there called The Home Recording Show, mm. which is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I didn't learn any production in school, really. So I went back and listened to every single episode. I think they're on like 230. Whoa. It taught me so much about mixing and recording. The John and Ryan who do that are just phenomenal. And I encourage any and every musician to go and listen to it. How dare you oh. come on my podcast <laughs> and make me... <laughs> hey, no, we'll just see. kidding. But yours I... is good because it covers topics that they don't. Theirs is so much more technical, and they talk about impedance and stuff like that. I mean, not all the time, but... um, Sounds pretty cool. Oh, yeah. But see, like, they don't cover the philosophical side, if that makes sense. You know, they're going to talk about how a compressor works... They don't cover anything, you know, like, oh, how did you write that track or anything of that nature? Sure, sure. Well, I'm on a mission kind of to interview every podcaster in the field. Oh. <laughs> so I'm going to be having a few episodes coming up with other podcasters. Who oh, do really? This kind of thing, too. So, yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, Here's a question for you. How much music theory goes into your tracks, and how much of it is just purely instinct? You know, I use a lot of music theory. I use it as a means of communicating with clients because I ask people, uh, use mood words to describe to me what you want, like happy, funny, energetic, mysterious, something like that. And then I'll take that, and so if they say, like, adventurous, I'll be like, okay, well, probably start on a four to minor six, you know, two major one, something like that, taking their words and trying to transcribe it into music theory, that's enormously helpful. But as far as like melody goes, there's a a lot of that where I just rely on instinct. Sure, sure. It's always kind of interesting how changing one note within a chord can totally change the mood. <laughs> I mean, there's the obvious, like, major and minor. Okay, but, like, within a larger chord, like a seventh chord or something that has a lot of notes in it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. And when I'm feeling really introspective, I'll just sit at my keyboard. This is maybe just, like, a weird music theory thing. And just play two different chords and listen to the difference between them. Or on the guitar, too. And, and you know what? This reminds me. This is a little bit of a tangent, too. Um, I was telling one of my buddies the other day uh, about this game that I like to play with my guitarist friends. It's called the Ugly Chord Game. And it's best played in the presence of people who don't play guitar or are not musicians. And do you play guitar? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. So this applies to you. You just try to contort your hand and come up with the ugliest chord you can on the guitar. And you just, you know, trade back and forth. But even when, like, you're just stretching your hand and you're up on the 12th fret and also ringing out uh, open strings, I'm hard-pressed to find a chord that is just super terrible and ugly. All of them have these little bits in them that are really interesting. Every 
everybody who's not a musician or doesn't play guitar, they're like, stop this. This is uh, terrible. Why are you doing this to me? And I'm like, no, did you hear that? Up on the, like, the high E, there's, it did this little cool thing. Uh, listen again. I was thinking about, as I was listening to your music, how people's perception of dissonance, I think, is different, too. Mm, yeah, definitely. I don't know. I don't think I really write with a lot of dissonance. I think there's just one track, maybe, that I was thinking of was dissonant in a way that I would think of as dissonance, but I don't know. Maybe you didn't at the time. Um, there's a track, Thanks BH. Somebody wanted a Bernard Herrmann esque track for their horror movie. And that, you know, that gets, there's definitely some dissonance in there. Herman, for anybody who doesn't know, was a fantastic composer, and he did all of, or maybe not all, but definitely the lion's share of Hitchcock's films. Uh, just go listen right now, maybe, or after the podcast, and just listen to the way that he uses dissonance, and the track is titled Thanks BH, because I just kind of appropriate his style. Could you describe how you did that, or what, what? Are some characteristic music theory things, maybe, or instrumentation things? Um, yeah, just, I use a lot of high strings and chromatics. And uh, another thing is, there's uh, some punctuated rhythms in there, like the classic... I was writing this, it was like three in the morning in my studio and all the lights were off and I was just like after listening to this dissonant music for a few hours I was getting a little jumpy <laughs> I used phrase modulation too so there's a central melody and then everything just kind of shifts up and um, there's really no intermediary chord or cadence to ease the passing so it's, it's not a, necessarily a smooth transition and that creates a little bit of tension as well. I don't know if I've ever heard the term phrase modulation. Yeah, it's just, um... Yep, okay, I had to Google it. It's also called direct or abrupt modulation. Is part of the idea that you play the same phrase in the modulation i mean i guess you don't have to but obviously yeah and you really don't have to change anything because it's new and it's it's different enough just because of this stark contrast of different keys right next to each other yeah yeah i actually just wrote a piece that does that kind of thing in the very beginning of it oh cool yeah i have this trombone and bassoon duet. It starts out with this melody. They're both playing the same note in unison. And then the way the melody ends is they land on a note 
a major third below that. And so then I was like, well, I like that melody. Maybe they'll just start the same melody uh, major third below that and just modulate it like this phrase modulation thing you're talking about. It's like because they're hearing the same melody, it's more easy to transition to that key. Yeah, that's that's true. That does help. What's the name of that piece, or is it even available to listen? Yeah, I just put it up on YouTube. It's oh, cool. called Finish Line. It's actually the one I wrote for the Fortune Cookie Songwriting Challenge. Oh, yeah. That was the, yeah, the quest number six. I was bummed I couldn't participate in that. I just couldn't find the time. I'm definitely going to do the next one, though. Yeah. There's a few ideas being kicked around right now. Oh, exciting. Well, Chris, was there any other last pieces of advice you wanted to share with composers? I would say just make sure you have a... like If, if you're actively trying to work as a composer, make sure you have a good portfolio because I see a lot of people out there not to say I have a great portfolio I actually used a template and tried to make it myself and I'm by no means a programmer but I see a lot of people just throwing a sound cloud around and you look so much better if you just spend the time to get a website up there and then just embed SoundCloud into it that's what I do it's not very expensive and yeah you you look a lot better like your website yeah, your def- website looks great Charlie oh thanks <laughs> yeah I go back and forth about liking and not liking my website, but <laughs> yeah. I think I'm just going to stick with it because I, I like the mood of having those like white clouds sort of look. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what people think that actually looks like, but <laughs> anyways, Chris, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, likewise. I hope people actually contact you with questions because you, I'm sure, have some advice for them. Yeah, hopefully. Well, thanks, Chris. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Charlie. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Composer Quest with Chris Kukla. You can find more of his music at chriskukla.com. Or if you liked a specific track you heard in this episode, you can go to composerquest.com slash kukla, K-U-K-L-A, and I have the show notes there. If you want to get in touch with me, feel free to email me, charlie at composerquest.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, feel free to check out ComposerQuest on Facebook or Twitter. Now I'll leave you with one of Chris's tracks, a really grungy chiptune sound called TIA. And this was written for the game Life of Pixel by Super Icon Studios. And it's called TIA because it uses the TIA chip found in the Atari 2600.